Jeff and team for leading us in singing this morning. Born in 1866 in a log cabin in Franklin, Kentucky, Thomas Obadiah Chisholm became a Christian when he was 27 years old. He entered the ministry when he was 36, but because of poor health, he only lasted one year. During the rest of his life, Chrisom spent many years living in New Jersey, where he worked as a life insurance agent. And it's interesting, even though he was tied to a desk, he wrote nearly 1,200 poems, 800 of them were published. Many were set to music. Chrisom himself explained toward the end of his life, and I quote, my income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in my early years, which continued to follow me until now. Although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God, and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care, for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. Chrisom died in 1960 at the age of 94, but not before George Beverly Shea, that famous singer with the Billy Graham Crusades, introduced one of his poems when he sang it for a evangelistic crusade meetings in Great Britain in 1954. It immediately became a favorite. And if you'll take that hymn book that's in the pew in front of you, Dust it off a bit and turn to hymn number 44. You'll notice that it's one of our favorites, too. Pay particular attention to the words of verse 3. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That's the title of this morning's message. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. But as we come to the end of John chapter 16, I can't imagine Jesus' disciples feeling it. Feeling strength for today and bright hope for this morning. This morning we're going to be completing our study of what has been commonly referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. It began back in John chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus and his disciples, you'll remember, have sequestered themselves in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. They re they've retreated from the crowds because they want to celebrate the Passover meal together. Alone in that upper room, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus' actions and words become the focus of attention for the next four chapters. And I find it interesting to note that the Apostle John takes chapters 1 to 15 to explain or to report on the life and ministry of Jesus spanning two and a half years. And then as we come to John chapter 
13 to 16, four entire chapters cover just seven or eight hours. Clearly, these are important, significant moments in the life of Jesus as he takes initiatives to prepare his most intimate ministry companions for his imminent departure. If you've not already done so, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 16. Last week we looked at verses 16 to 22, where we discovered life is a, it offers an emotional roller coaster, and Jesus offers a permanent joy. Look at the end of verse 22. But I will but will you but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. What a bold and audacious promise that is. But Jesus' presence produces that kind of joy. And not just for the eleven, but for you and I as well. For all who will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This morning we want to turn our attention to verses 23 to the end of the chapter, verse 33. And I hope to be able to help you make three discoveries in this final exchange between Jesus and the eleven. We'll find a promising future, a false start and a true comfort. And as we study these verses, it is my hope and prayer that we'll leave this morning finding strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning, beginning at verse 20 of John chapter 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will turn into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive so that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. 
I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly are we not using, and are not using figurative speech. Now we, know you are, now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You know, as I studied this week, I found it interesting to note that in these verses, in fact, you, you may want to take a pen and underline uh, in this passage, Jesus actually voices three imperatives. So just prior to the cross, at the very end of his upper room discourse, Jesus gives three commands. Can you see them there? Verse 23, ask, ask and you will receive. Verse 32, behold. Verse 33, take courage. As you reflect on those three commands, what would they suggest? Or what are some of the implications that are contained in those commands. Ask certainly implies that they do not have what they need in and of themselves. They need to ask and receive. Behold suggests that this would be a good time to listen and observe, not to speak. Take courage indicates that whatever lies ahead, this is not going to be easy. You need strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is everlasting. The psalmist declares, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The prophet, too, affirms that the grass withers and the flower fades, but, but the word of our God stands forever. And so now, as we turn our attention to your written word here in John chapter 16, inspired by your spirit and written by the Apostle John, may that same spirit illumine our minds so that we can understand this text and not just understand it with our minds, but assimilate it into our hearts so that it transforms us from the inside out. Our thinking, our feelings, the way we see the world, our values, and certainly eventually even our behaviors. All for the purpose that you might be glorified in and through us. 
individually and collectively. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Do you ever feel like you need some of that? Gary Enrig in his book called A Call to Excellence tells the following story. The record for the shortest Major League Baseball career probably belongs to a member of the old Brooklyn, Brooklyn Dodgers, a pitcher by the name of Harry Hartman. Anybody remember him? I hope not. He was a gifted young ball player whose day of glory arrived in 1918 when he was called up from the minors to pitch against the Pittsburgh Pirates. This was the moment he dreamed of since he was a boy. A major league baseball career. Well, his dreams began to fade almost immediately. His very first pitch was hit for a single. The next batter tripled, rattled. He walked the next batter. The next batter tripled again and rattled further. He walked the next batter on four straight pitches. And then when he did finally throw a strike, the next batter hit it for a single. And at that point, Hartman had had enough. He walked off the pitcher's mound, headed for the showers, dressed, left the stadium. From there, went down the street to a naval recruiting office where he enlisted. And the next day, he was in uniform and never heard from again in professional baseball. Who would have blamed Jesus' disciples if they had walked out of that upper room that night and went down the street to a naval recruiting office instead of following Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane? This is not what they'd signed up for. Look again at verses 23 to 28. And that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world and again and going to the Father. Beloved, I would say that that's a pretty optimistic outlook in light of what Jesus himself was facing. Judas Iscariot's betrayal, desertion by the remaining 11, Peter's denials, not once, not twice, but three times, arrest, 
mock, mock trial, torture, beatings, a humiliating and shameful death by crucifixion. And oh yes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All in the next few hours. And yet here at the end of the upper room discourse, we find Jesus painting a picture. A picture that presented a promising future for his disciples. In today's terms, we might say he was casting a vision. Jesus' picture or vision of his disciples' future consists of three realities. The first is that their questions will be answered. Notice how verse 23 begins. In that day, you will not question me about anything. In what day? Look back at verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, in the day when they see Jesus again, and their hearts are overflowing with joy, they will not question Jesus about anything. Seeing the resurrected Jesus would be a game changer. Remember Thomas, one of the original 12? How skeptical he was when he was first told of Jesus' resurrection. But when Jesus actually appeared to him following his resurrection, invited Thomas to examine the nail prints in his hands and, and the wound in his side, Thomas experienced a dramatic turnaround. My God, my Lord, and my God. My Bible, that statement does not end with a question mark. But in the NISB, it ends with an exclamation mark. At that moment, Thomas saw Jesus Christ as his Lord and as his God. And he was not looking to ask Jesus any questions. Whether you see in that day as referring to Jesus' post-resurrection appearances or, or maybe further down the road when the Holy Spirit arrives in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, or as a reference to that time when, when Jesus is going to return, the second advent to set up his kingdom here on earth. Or maybe you see it as an illusion of all three. The point is, that Jesus was offering or promising a future where their confusion relating to his departure and those two a little whiles. Remember in verse 16, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And drop down to verse 18. They were saying, what is all this? He says, a little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus promising future for his disciples, pictured them moving from confusion to clarity. You will not question me about anything. The second reality in Jesus' picture of a, of a promising future for his disciples is that their requests will be realized. Notice the second half of verse 23. 
Truly, truly, I say to you. Remember that phrase when John uses that truly, truly. He's saying this is important. This is a sobering statement. You'll need to write this down. Remember this. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. If you ask the Father for anything in my name, that's new. Previously, they would just ask Jesus. He was there amongst them. And then remember how Jesus had taught them to pray? Matthew, our Father who is in heaven, you can say it with me, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. But in that day, here in John chapter 16, when they see him again, following his resurrection, they will pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. What would be the implications of asking or praying in the name of Jesus? I mean, first of all, that they would come, they would not come in their own name. Or on the basis of something they have accomplished or done to, to somehow win a hearing of the Father. It is Jesus' accomplishments that make the Father accessible. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians? Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. And so it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That was not only true for the eleven, but it's true for you and I as well. A second implication is that our prayers and or in Jesus' name, will line up with Jesus' character, with his plans and purposes. We ask in his name. Oswald Chambers interprets praying in Jesus' name as asking anything in my nature. And a third implication is our prayers are to be an expression of submission to him. Not my will but yours be done. It's praying in Jesus' name. Sound familiar? You might want to look up Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Praying in Jesus' name is not like abracadabra. There is nothing magical or mystical or manipulative about praying in Jesus' name. Rather, it's an admission of unworthiness on our part. And it's an expression of our desire to ask and receive what we believe to be in keeping with Jesus' nature, his character, and also his plans and purposes. Look at verse 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that, it's a purpose statement, your joy may be made full. This past week, 
I wept with a friend who I was speaking with on FaceTime. In recent months, we had been challenged to pray more earnestly for his teenage son. And he was telling a story that had taken place earlier that week when his son had come to him utterly broken and frustrated with his life. A life that was full of lies and and deception. The son had come to that point in his life where he admitted his sin, was begging God to forgive him, and expressed his desire to start trusting Jesus Christ as the Son of God and allow him to be the leader of his life. Our tears were tears of joy in answer to our prayers. Mega joy. Their questions will be answered. Their questions will be realized. And their relationship strengthened. Their relationship with the Father. Look at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Plain speech. How refreshing would that be? No more figurative language, no more vagueness, just straight talk. Jesus, teaching about the Father, would now be crystal clear and without reservation. Look back at verse 12. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus was promising a future where they could now bear it. His plain teaching about the Father. And that kind of clarity, plain talk, that's good for any relationship. Look at verse 26 and 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. In that day, when Jesus speaks plainly, they will learn that they have this direct relationship with the Father. Because of their love for Jesus and belief in him as the Christ, the Son of God, they will be the recipients of the Father's attentive love. John chapter 1, verse 12 puts it this way. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. By trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, admitting your sin, repenting of that sin, and asking God to forgive you on the basis of what Jesus accomplished, we can now enjoy our direct relationship with the Father. If you've never done that, loved him and believed that he came forth from the Father, I would beg you to do that today. Your eternal destiny is at stake. 
and know that God desires that all men will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. He wants a relationship with us. In fact, so much so that he took the initiative and sent his son into this world. And so much so that he reveals himself in this book, the Bible. The choice is now ours. He's taken the initiative. Admit, repent, believe, and submit by asking him to become the leader of your life. All this is made possible, of course, by, by Jesus. Verse 28 presents a, a summary of Jesus' life in a sentence. Do you notice it? I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. That's his incarnation. The fact that God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. That speaks of his death, resurrection, ascension. And because of all this, Jesus could paint a picture of a promising future for his disciples. A promising future that promised, pictured, answered questions, realized requests, and a strong, intimate relationship with their Father who's in heaven. A picture that could definitely provide some strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, especially through the next few hours and days when all their hopes and dreams will be shattered. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in a high priest courtyard, and on a hill called Golgotha. You ever have those kind of days? Seasons in your life? Those times when you just don't feel like getting out of bed, like to curl up in a fetal position and pull the covers over your head? How about those times when every traffic light seems to turn red just as you approach? When it seems like one step forward becomes three back. Progress means regress. Or we're always moving in the wrong direction. It just seems we can't win for losing. Well, in times like that, a picture of a promising future can provide the strength that we need for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. As the elders here at TRCC, we've tried to paint that kind of a picture for us collectively, a promising future, casting God's vision for what we believe he wants to do in and through us as a local church. It's based on Ephesians chapter 4. God envisions TRCC becoming an equipping center where his people can come and be equipped for the ministries that he's prepared them to do. You know, I hope you have that feedback form that you received in the bulletin as you entered the auditorium 
the worship center this morning. There's a box located in the foyer that you can fill it out and return it there. The whole purpose of that is to give us another opportunity to be equipped for the work that God has called us to do. Then based in Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, God wants TRC participants to experience a oneness that actually reflects Jesus' relationship to the Father. Perfect and practical unity. A visible expression of the love that he continued to command us to have for each other. And then finally, from Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, God's desire is that we would be aligned. All of us pulling in the same direction, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, is what Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 states. So that whatever we do, we're bringing glory to God. Beloved, that's a picture of a promising future for our church. It can give us strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. Especially when things are not going as planned. Or when we find our hopes and dreams being shattered or derailed or delayed. Or perhaps when my needs or my needs are not being met. Or we have encountered some really attractive alternatives like Solid Creek Golf Course on days like today. But here in John chapter 16, Jesus' picture of a promising future led to a false start. Jesus' disciples did not know what they did not know. Look at verses 29 to 30. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly. We are not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. What's happening here? We've grown accustomed to Peter, the spokesperson for the Twelve, often speaking before he thinks. But on this occasion, it's all of them, collectively, all 11 of them. New American Standard Translation says the disciples' response as follows. Lo, now you are speaking plainly. That word translated lo is actually the same word that Jesus uses in verse 32. And that's interesting. You remember that I said earlier that this is the second of Jesus' commands found here in this passage of Scripture. And so the disciples, who have just said very, very little throughout the last four chapters, Jesus doing all the talking, they decide to speak up in an imperative way, which says, finally, now you're speaking plainly. But wait a minute. That's a direct contradiction of what Jesus has just said in John, chapter, in John chapter 16, verse 25. Listen, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I'll tell you plainly of the Father in that day. 
Not today, and certainly not in the next two minutes. But here the disciples have it all figured out. So let me just cut to the chase here. Contrary to what his disciples were thinking of themselves at this point in time, what they know and what they believe is at best limited. An airplane airplane pilot was flying over the southeastern United States and he called the local tower and asked, what time is it? Can you give us a, a time check? The tower responded and said, what airliner is this? And the pilot responded, what difference does that make? I just want the time. The tower responded, oh, that makes a lot of difference. If you are Trans World Airline or Pan Am, it's 1,600 hours. If you are United or Delta, it's 4 o'clock. If you are Southwestern, the little hand is at the 4, the big hand is at the 12. And if you're Skyway Airlines, it's Thursday. For these 11 remaining disciples, it's May. They just don't have a clue. They did not know what they did not know. And as a result, they were making claims that they did not fully understand. And notice how Jesus, I think gently, corrects them. Reveals their false start. They certainly have jumped the gun. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. He questions them and discloses how they will, in fact, in this time when he is going to be ripped from them, a cruel departure. And notice he's not sharing this as a means to to gain their sympathy or for his benefit. They would abandon him, and he knew that. And yet he assures them, I'm not alone. My father is with me. So this was clearly another reality check for his disciples, where they're confronted with reality. And this is for their benefit. He's continuing to prepare them for this inescapable future. But I have to think that, that that must have stung Criticisms, being told where you fall short or are missing the mark are never easy to hear. And surely hearing Jesus' corrective response, they would need strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Knowing that we don't know what we don't know, and yet knowing what we do know i don't know about you but i find it hard to keep it to myself 
I think James offers some wise counsel. Chapter 1, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Beloved, we all know all kinds of things, but we don't know everything. And what we don't know should make us really cautious. I think it was either Abraham Lincoln or Mark Twain who said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak up and remove all doubt. (laughs) Jesus' disciples at this point were probably wishing that they had just kept silent. A promising future, a false start, and a true comfort. Look at verse 33. These things I have spoken to you. What things? Certainly what he had just said. But maybe not only what he has just said in the last few sentences, but perhaps these things I have spoken to you in the last four chapters. Maybe it's referring to the upper room discourse in its entirety. These things I have spoken to you so that, another purpose statement, so that you may, so that you, in me, you may have peace. Jesus' words made peace available. I was reading a book earlier this week. The author referred to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As I read on, I came to these words. This wonderful promise. Jesus assumes that left to ourselves, we are weighed down. Life out of sync with God does that. But as we come to Jesus, we find rest. Not just rest in the sense of a lazy weekend afternoon or a long sleep in on a day off. Jesus means something far deeper. Rest in the sense of things with God being the way they're meant to be. Rest in the sense of living along the grain of who we are and how God wants us to live. Rest in the sense of being able to truly flourish as the people God made us to be. Rest for our souls. Peace in a world that offers tribulation, NASB. Trouble, NIV. Trials and sorrow, New Living Translation. And who would argue with that assessment? Isn't that what the world offers? Not all the time. And certainly living in the midst of prosperity, we can soften the blow. It shields us from some of that life's troubles. But I like Eugene Peterson's translation or interpretive translation of this verse. I've told you all this so that trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties. But take heart, I have conquered the world. The NASB translates that phrase, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus' victory 
made courage attainable. Someone has defined courage as a perfect sensibility of the measure of danger. In other words, staring danger and assessing it, you know it's dangerous, and yet a mental willingness to endure it. Jesus was preparing his disciples for difficult days ahead. In their immediate future, they would witness his arrest, his pain, suffering, separation, and death by crucifixion. They would witness that. Beyond that, the 11 are looking at being hated, persecuted, unsynagogued, and killed in service to God. Jesus' final words of instruction included a promising future. And then his disciples jumped the gun. It was a false start. But Jesus brings them back with an offer of true comfort, a comfort rooted in an available peace and an attainable courage, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Beloved, be unshakable and assured. Back to Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation. I have told you all this so that trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 tells us, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example. Follow in his steps fixing our eyes on Jesus and following in his steps will ensure that we are unshakable and assured. The early Tuesday morning scripture memory group have committed Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10 to memory. I won't ask them to stand and recite it for you, but do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm not suggesting that it's going to be easy. In this world, we will have trouble. But Jesus' words make peace available. And his victory makes courage attainable for each and every one of us. So that being unshakable and assured is possible. So that we do have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Aren't you glad that we worship a God who would become a man and live among us, and then when facing his own death, would want to give us 
this kind of instruction. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gracious provisions. In the words of the Apostle Paul, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? May we take full advantage of all you provide for us. Not to fulfill our own appetites, desires, and dreams, but to, to glorify you by serving others. Thank you that we continue to trust Jesus as Christ, the Son of God. We too can find strength for today and, and bright hope for tomorrow, regardless of what is happening around us, in us, or even to us. Enable us to be unshakable and assured by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.